0: Grateful again today to be in uh, Philippians uh, chapter 1 to continue on from from last week. Um, If you remember, last week we talked about the unbelievable reality that wherever God has you is where He wants you in order to be carrying out the work of evangelism and discipleship that He has for you, that you are to be serving with all your heart No matter where you are, realizing that He has currently and strategically placed you in the area of those whom He wants you to share Christ with or to help grow in Christ. We discussed the fact that there are no waiting periods in the Christian life, no times where you are waiting for God to do something so that you can get on to the next thing. God currently has surrounded you with your ministry field. You are not waiting for your next job or for a spouse or for the next big milestone in your life. Maybe maybe even to die. Maybe that's the next big milestone for you that you see. But, but you are right now where you need to be. And your job is to live faithfully in that place. And sometimes, yes, that will mean taking another job or, or getting married or, or facing imminent death. But rest assured that right now, There are people in your life that God wants you to minister to. This mindset, and we talked about this last week, makes logical sense because we serve an omniscient, omnipotent, and sovereign God. And He has tasked us with the mission that we currently have. So it makes complete sense then that we are to think like this. And whether we see it as clearly as Paul does in verses 12-14 through that we read last week, whether we see it that clearly or not, we can rest assured that whatever is happening to us is for the purpose of advancing the gospel in a better way than, than it would if we were in control of our circumstances. And it's so important that we embrace this understanding of the way God providen- providentially orchestrates the circumstances in our lives in a way that best advances the gospel before we move into the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Because only one who has absolute confidence in the saving power of the gospel and the sovereign God who causes it to, to advance at the rate and in the way that He wants it to could say the type of things that Paul says in these verses in Philippians one 15 through 15-18. But since you do really need to be thinking about the context and what was laid ahead in verses 12 through 14, let's go ahead and read that whole section of 12 through 18 together now. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So, you're going to immediately, right, as you read those verses, see the need for trusting in a good and sovereign plan of God. Because as Paul begins to speak now, as he begins to expand on what he said in verses 12 through 14, as he begins to say these things, we'll talk a little more about those who have become more bold to speak the gospel. It seems, as we look at this at first glance, like he is like he's undercutting his previous point. Wait, wait a minute, I, I thought you just said that everything is better this way. But, but it turns out that there's a bunch of people running around free while you are in chains and they're using this as an opportunity to sin and cause you more suffering. How is the gospel being advanced better that way? Well, you're in prison. If those who are taking your place out in the open are preaching Christ with sinful motives. So you can see how this would lead to confusion. And that is what we're going to seek to discover, seek to answer today. We want to understand what this passage is showing, that while it is true that Christ is proclaimed for differing reasons, identification with the gospel will purify our motivation in our ministry. So I want us to understand today that identification with Christ through the gospel will purify our motivation in our ministry. If it is true that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, then the person who has been saved by this gospel will see that it is far more important that the gospel is understood rightly than that they are understood rightly. That it doesn't matter if they're misunderstood as long as the gospel is understood. That it doesn't matter if they are thought of in a lowly way as long as Christ is treasured. This is what we see from Paul here as he further shows his absolute trust in a sovereign God by affirming the good of having Christ's name proclaimed even while His name is just trashed. It is the message that is primary and not the messenger. But yet, it, it would be wrong for us to look at this passage and then come to the conclusion that as long as we are preaching truth then, then it really doesn't matter what's going on in our heart. If it's just about getting the message clear, then maybe it's not so important what's going on in my heart. In addition to exemplifying that we can rejoice whenever Christ is preached truthfully, no matter what the intention behind the proclamation might have been, Paul here is also using this as an opportunity to begin to teach the Philippians something that he is really going to drive home later in the epistle that the motivation in their heart is actually really important. And it does, in fact, point to what they really believe and understand about who Christ is. And that's what we're going to explore as we look at the the first point in your outline. So what we see in, in the verses that we're going to be looking at today We see two very different groups of people who fall into the description from verse 14 of those who are, look at verse 14, those who are brothers who have become confident in the Lord. They they fall into that category of those people, those people who are much more bold now to speak the Lord without fear. So we're not surprised, we wouldn't be surprised to hear that fellow Christians would become more bold to preach the gospel. Because, like we said last week, watch, watching others suffer well for the sake of Christ is inspiring. It's an encouragement to us that, yes, this, this is true. This is the truth. This is right. This is worth giving our lives for. We're encouraged in that as we watch others suffer well for the sake of Christ. Of Christ. What is surprising, though, is that from among this group of Those who have been identified as brothers arise some who are preaching Christ with wrong motives. It is important that we understand here that these people are emerging from that group, the group of Christian brothers, those who have become confident in the Lord. The ones mentioned in verse 14. These are not those who we can just fit neatly into the category of heretical false teachers. Some have actually suggested that these people may be Judaizers. The opponents that Paul writes against in Galatians, and and probably also the same false teachers that are apparently endangering the Philippian church that we'll see uh, mentioned in chapter 3. But this cannot be correct. They cannot be Judaizing false teachers. There is no way that Paul would refer to Judaizers as brothers. He calls them dogs in chapter 3. And if, you, if just a quick scan of the book of Galatians would demonstrate to you even, even farther, even further, that uh, Paul would never rejoice in the preaching of the Judaizers. He would never rejoice in the gospel that they proclaim. Okay? Because they're not about proclaiming a true understanding of Christ to unbelievers in order to win them to Christ. They're not about that. Rather, their goal was to proclaim a legalistic, works-oriented, false gospel of Christ to Gentile believers in order to influence them. So the, the remarkable truth then is that both of these groups, both of these groups that we read about in these verses, are identified by Paul in the category of brothers who have been emboldened to preach Christ. In fact, if, as you look at this passage, that, that's the one thing that the two, two groups have in common. As you go through this list and see the, the motivations and attitudes that are, the, that are opposite from each other, the one unifying thing about them is that they both preach Christ. And it's not different versions of Christ. It's not different Gospels. Paul would never rejoice in that. But actually, uh, the definite article is, is, is there in the Greek text in front of Christ. Uh, it, it remains untranslated uh, in our English versions, but it's there. So it's like saying that they both preach the Christ, the singular truth about Christ. They're not, they're not teaching a different Christ or a different gospel. So, so this truth, that, that, that is what should keep us from foolishly saying the same thing about every church in the city. Because there's lots of people who use this passage wrongly in a way to downplay differences in churches. And they say things like, yeah, I'm sure we don't agree on everything, but I'm like Paul. I just rejoice whenever Christ is preached. All other churches that, that name the name of Christ... We can rejoice that they're, that they're there, that they're doing what they're doing. Paul is not affirming everyone who just uses the name of Christ and saying that I'm just so thankful for anyone who talks about Christ, no matter what they might say. That is not what's happening, though that is what we hear constantly by those who would like to, to, to create a unity where one cannot exist. Paul, he clearly does not believe that. If you just read the rest of his letters, he is constantly confronting false teaching about Christ. We'd be foolish to praise God for and then try to come together with other churches around a common acknowledgement of Jesus Christ. We can only rejoice in a right proclamation of what is true about Christ. There is no joy about a church that proclaims Jesus Christ but also fails to proclaim all that is true about Christ. That is not a ministry to rejoice in. It's a ministry that we are here to to try and save people out of. Paul is clear here that these are brothers, though. These are brothers. They're not like that. At least in their proclamation. They, They preach the Christ, not a Christ of their own making. If they weren't preaching the true gospel, he could not rejoice. Now, are we certain that all of these people that Paul is referring to are truly regenerate Christians? that, That seems unlikely, given that some of the words used to describe the motives of these detractors are found in some of Paul's lists of vices that uh, that he uses to describe unbelievers and false teachers, like the one in Galatians 5, 20 and 21. There's another one at the end of Romans, uh, Romans 1. Uh, but even so, even though that is probably the case, Paul is not willing to place them outside the category of brothers at this point. He is content to allow for a category of true Christians who at least for a time may be preaching the true gospel with some sinful motivations. In fact, given the content of the rest of this letter, what he is doing here, he is carefully using instructive wording in this passage, in this part, for the benefit of the Philippians in order to lay down a foundation for some of his instruction that he intends to give later on. That's, That's what he's doing. It seems clear from the way Paul begins verse 15 that those in the Philippian church must have known something about Paul's detractors in Rome. Those who were preaching Christ but using it as an opportunity to malign Paul. That's what we see there. The Philippians must have already known of their existence and Paul knew that they were aware of them because that's that's what we see in the phrase, some indeed. Some indeed, or in some translations, uh, some to be sure, it's almost like, like when Paul said that what he said in verse 14 to encourage them that his imprisonment was actually causing others to be more bold in the proclamation of Christ, he needed to then immediately address an objection that he assumed was popping into the minds of those who were hearing this letter for the first time, those who maybe knew of the existence of these detractors to his ministry. They had apparently heard that that there were those in the church in Rome who didn't like Paul and who were using his imprisonment as an opportunity to promote their own ministry or just to disparage who Paul is. And Paul seems to here be conceding that point in what he is saying. He's saying, yes, there are those who seem to be only preaching Christ more boldly because of their disdain for me. But that doesn't change the fact that God is using my imprisonment in a greater way than if I was not in prison. So, Paul concedes that yes, these people, his detractors, are there. And then he uses these next few verses to go into more more detail than would be necessary about their sinful motivations, while also keeping them in the category of brothers. And this is almost certainly almost certainly for instructive purposes that he has and instructive plans he has for the Philippians later on in this letter. One of the things that is evident from this letter as you read through the whole thing is that Paul is concerned that the believers in Philippi are in danger of allowing sinful motivations to influence the way they live. And he's really going to get into this later in the book. Paul seems to be clearly setting them up for that right here. He wants to tap into what is no doubt, what they no doubt have is an, an animosity that they have for those who would dare to use the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul, the, the, the one whom they, who we have already seen the Philippians love and care for and have so much concern for. They, they have an animosity certainly to those who would use his suffering as an opportunity to advance themselves. They would have been no doubt extremely bothered by this. And so Paul is kind of setting them up in a a Nathan before David type of way. Paul is setting them up later to see that they are in danger of living in that exact same way. If you want to, look at, actually, whether you want to or not, look at uh, Philippians 2 over on the next page, verses 1 through 4. You You can see this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These four verses in Philippians 2 are the verses that lead up to what is certainly the most well-known passage in the book of Philippians. Uh, verses 5 through 11. And it is in this context of Paul warning these beloved Philippians that they need to to desperately call to mind the humility of Christ. That's what we see in 5 through 11. The humility of Christ, they need to call that to mind. They need to remember that. They need to to see Jesus that way. Remember who he is, remember what he has done. Look at his humility or they will be in danger of being motivated by the exact same sinful impulses that these detractors to Paul's ministry in Rome are motivated by. This is that context. This is the context. Paul, Paul's concern that they do nothing out of selfish ambition. Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11 is one of the most significant Christological passages in the entire New Testament, and it is written to address that concern. To show what a big deal this is. And so when you see that language in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It is strikingly similar to what we see in this passage this morning. As they are hearing this for the first time, Paul wants them to be equating their motives with Paul's detractors whom they no doubt cannot stand. He wants them to see that later on. So, if it were impossible for a true believer to ever be motivated by selfish ambition at any point, then Paul would not warn them in such a powerful way of that very danger in chapter 2. So, as we look even further then into this first point, Uh, in in your outline, we who are mindful uh, of what is said throughout the letter, we need to hear these words with the same concern for our own motives when it comes to our ministry. The same concerns that Paul intended to provoke in the Philippians. So we can see as we look a little closer that Paul has organized these verses in a way that is supposed to lead us to compare and contrast these different motivations. So we see... Two reasons, two motivations set up to contrast each other in verse 15. Two more that are expanded a little further on in, in verses 16 and 17. And then two more contrasts in verse 18 that kind of really serve as more of a summation of the two groups. So let's continue to examine this passage through these sets of contrasting words that we see in these verses. So for, for your organization in your notes, you could use the following three subpoints. Subpoint point A, envy or goodwill. Subpoint B, love or selfish ambition. Sub point C, truth or pretense. So sub point A, envy or goodwill. So look again at verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So he says, envy and strife. So we see these two words are used to contrast the singular concept of goodwill. So keep in mind, Paul is saying that these people are, are brothers, or they, they they at least come out of the church. They are preaching the Christ. They're preaching the true proclamation of Christ in this way. And it And they're motivated by envy and strife, and that seems unthinkable. The word translated as envy here can be translated also as jealousy. One lexicon defines it by saying a state of ill will towards someone because of some real or presumed advantage experienced by such a person. And that word translated as rivalry can be strife. Rivalry, strife, the idea of having to do with quarrels or enjoying quarrels. So we can kind of get the idea from these words that these are people who are argumentative towards Paul in some way. They perceive that Paul's prominence is undeserved, and they think that they should have that same type of audience, they should have that same type of recognition. They're using Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to defame his ministry and magnify their own in some way. And, this is, and the fact that they remain in this category of, of brothers who have been emboldened to preach Christ without fear, speak the word without fear, the fact that they're in that category is it's amazing because it is that word that's translated as envy, that, that same word that's used to describe the motivation behind the Jewish leaders who, are, who have called for, for Jesus' arrest in Matthew 27, 18. That, that was their motivation. Paul is identifying these people as brothers, those who preach the true gospel of Christ, and yet they are motivated by that same sin. This is, again, this, this is in contradiction then to the others who preach Christ from goodwill. Meaning that they, they had in mind what was best for others. They have in mind what is best for others. And that could refer to a few different things here. There, there are all kinds of good motivation for proclaiming Christ uh, when, you're, when you're talking about having in mind what is best for others. Right, so they could have in mind um, what is best for God, the glory of God and his kingdom rather than anything about themselves. They could have in mind that they, they're thinking about the good of those who, who are hearing the gospel. That certainly makes sense. This is a saving message that they desperately need to hear. So, of course, you are doing something good for them. But based on the common relational language of the terms that we see in this passage and the, the fact that the other words are directed at Paul, the goodwill that Paul is probably referring to here is the goodwill that they have in regard to Paul himself. They know that Paul desires to be out in the city. He, that's what he desires. He, he desires to be out there among the people teaching and preaching, freely proclaiming the gospel to whoever he can. But since he cannot, because he is in chains for his faithfulness, these people want to take up the torch in his place. There's a a good intent shown to Paul when they are motivated to do the ministry that he longs himself to do. When they don't let him bear the burden of that ministry on his own. So I, I think it's easy, a lot of us, for a lot of us, to understand the goodwill expressed toward the person that you are sharing the, the gospel with. Right? It is quite honestly the best thing that you can do for someone, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, explaining the gospel for the first time to an unbeliever, and then unpacking the reality of the gospel to a believer. So I think it's easy for us to understand that, but I think it is also real easy for us to not see what Paul is expressing here as a cause for motivation at all, to totally miss that. Knowing that, knowing that, and thinking about the fact that all the evangelism that I do, all of the discipleship that I do, also helps out brothers and sisters in Christ who will now have to do less or will be able to lighten the burden of their ministry the leaders in the church especially. Is that how you see that? Can I, I just tell you from a, from a pastoral perspective that as I, when I come and I stand up here, and I, and I think I can speak for, for Travis and for the rest of the elders, when we're up here, when we look around at the congregation, when we see all of these wonderful people that God has brought into our church, who He has made part of our family, we are overjoyed. Overjoyed. And it, it, it's the, but it's a similar type of joy that comes with, having, with, with adding a member to your physical family. It's a, a joy when you see them. It's a joy as you watch them grow. But there's a tremendous weight of responsibility knowing that God has entrusted you with them. We see, we look out, we see a huge group of dear people whom we love, and all of them need to be discipled. All of us need to be discipled. So, so with that in mind, as a, as a pastor, just about the most wonderful thing that, that we can hear is something along the lines of, Daniel is meeting with that guy over there. They're studying scripture together. Christy is working with that girl. Chuck is taking that man through through some book, helping him along. Right, and that, the guy over there, he's in he's in the group that meets meets up with Jack. He, hearing those types of things. As a pastor. Is like I've tried to figure out a way to describe it. It's like someone actually crediting rest into your soul. That's what it feels like. It's better than that, that first cup of coffee entering your sleep-deprived body, seeing and understanding that the church is doing that. Have you, have you considered that motivation when it comes to engaging in ministry? Because it is, it's truly impossible to minister from envy and strife when you're thinking that way. I want to do what is good for the church. I want to put others above myself. And, and one of the best ways I can do this is by doing the evangelism and doing the discipleship that others are seeing, that the elders are seeing, the, the spiritual needs that are burdening them, those things that are heavy on their hearts. I I want to do those things. I'm going to minister to those people in their place. Yeah, just I feel a sense of peace and joy just saying that. And, and the same thing when when you evangelize. I mean, so maybe you don't see yourself as a as as a gifted evangelist. Maybe you've had some bad experiences. Maybe you've been the recipient from uh, of some hatred from the world. For the cause of Christ. But have you also considered the fact that not only is your evangelism an expression of love for God and faith in His power to save and His power alone and not your efforts, not only is it an expression of your love towards that God and to the person who you're sharing with, but it is also a tangible way to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is, we all look out in the world and we see a world in a desperate need of the gospel. And we have an understanding that that is a load that must be shared. The type of thinking that says, I refuse to be disobedient to Christ and unloving to my brothers and sisters in Christ by failing to lift as much of that load as God would give me the strength to do. With that in mind, it is much easier to understand the contrast that Paul has in mind here. Because when you start to think of ministry in terms of, I need to start pulling my weight around here because I don't want to look like the only one not doing his job. Or, I've been a Christian for a while now. I feel like I've really got a lot going for me that people aren't noticing? I should probably get it, be getting more in different opportunities. Or maybe you're thinking of your ministry and something that sounds as innocent as, oh, what is wrong with me? I should be doing so much more than I am. Or, or others just have these gifts that I don't have and I wish I had those gifts. This feeling sorry for yourself is just another form of selfish, envious Thinking. If you find any of these types of questions going through your mind or maybe those are the things that are motivating you to be a better minister of the gospel. So you, you hear a convicting sermon or you read a convicting book and you're thinking questions like that. Boy, I really need to step up. I really need to get things going. I don't, like, I don't want to be looked down on. I don't want to be the only one not doing something. If that's what's driving you as you're convicted, those are signs that your motivation is off. It's the same type of stuff. Your heart is in the wrong place. Someone who has the, the good will of others as their motivation will not be thinking along those lines. And they will never be miserable when it comes to their ministry. No matter what kind of response they receive, they can always know this. I'm, I'm lifting the burden that someone else doesn't. I'm experiencing the hatred that, that a brother or sister in Christ now doesn't have to. And they won't be dominated by certain things that they wish they were doing or with certain opportunities that aren't available to them. They will be overjoyed by the good that they are able to accomplish on behalf of others. They will take joy in the advance of the gospel. They would take no pride and feel no disdain for their role in that advance. Subpoint B love or selfish ambition. And we see that in verses 16 and 17. The latter do it out of love. So the latter, those who, who proclaim Christ out of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Again, we see that Paul is relating uh, either love or selfish ambition to these people's uh, relationship with him. In these verses, Paul gives a, a, actually a, a little more description of what these two uh, motivations, these two reasons look like, which is interesting because for many people, this whole section is actually frustrating. It's a little frustrating for me, actually, as I'm studying it because of the lack of details as to exactly who these detractors were and exactly what they held against Paul. You really want to get to the bottom of that, but no one knows for sure, clearly, exactly what's happening here, no matter what commentary you read. But thankfully, in these verses, we do get a little more detail, but still nothing concrete. He affirms that the same group that is preaching Christ out of goodwill is also doing it out of love. And because the description of what that love is uh, directly relates to him, then it is clear that Paul doesn't just have a general love in mind, But a a specific again, a specific love towards him. You can see that in the wording. This love is seen in the fact that they are those who know that Paul is in prison for the defense of the gospel. So while we can't be exactly sure about everything that Paul's detractors in Rome were saying about him, we can be relatively sure that at least part of it had to do with saying or believing false things about why Paul was in prison. So there could have been a number of Reasons that they were saying, a number of things that they were saying to, to detract from Paul. Some have suggested that Paul's detractors used this as an occasion to make it sound like, well, if, if God really wanted Paul ministering, he wouldn't let him stay in prison, would he? So he must be doing something wrong. You could also imagine people using this as an opportunity to to discredit some of the miracles that they they have heard marked the life of the Apostle Paul that, that demonstrated the fact that he is an apostle and saying things like, yeah, you really think someone whom God has done miracles through is going to be stuck chained to a Roman soldier? Didn't think so. And there are other possible reasons that they may have been Espousing, but what marks those who love Paul in this passage is that they know, they know that he has been placed where he is for the defense of the gospel. Their love is marked by knowledge of what is true. And that should sound a little familiar if we were quickly reading through this letter and not. Me expecting you to remember something that we talked about in October, then 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 we would be reminded of his language here of verse nine. When we see how Paul is praying for the Philippians, look in verse nine of chapter one. It says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So Paul is seeing in some of these Roman Christians the very thing that he is praying for the Philippians. Their love is not just an emotional sentiment. It's based on what they know to be true about God and about Paul. So it's, it's easy to start running all over the place for them with, with all kinds of wild theories about what Paul is or isn't doing that would make God decide that he wants to punish Paul and, and, and imprison him. And if that's your mindset, and if you can't see beyond all of that, and if you haven't really died to this life, you don't really realize that you're a slave to a sovereign God and He gets to place you where you want, then you can jump to all of those conclusions. But if you know, as these Christians from verse 16 do, that it is God who has put Paul there, then they know that there is a reason for it. That, that word translated there is put. It literally means to be laid Somewhere, or to be set somewhere, to be placed somewhere. That's why uh, the NAS and other translations uh, translate it as the word appointed to. A right understanding of Paul's circumstances knows that God has placed him exactly where he is. Believes the truth that he just said in verses 12 through 14. It's placed him exactly where he is. And, and one who truly knows Paul and knows what God has called us to as Christians then and then also knows that Paul has been placed exactly where God wants him for God's purpose to see the faithful Paul defend the gospel they understand that they know that to be true on the other hand we see in verse 17 that the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition and just as Love is seen through knowing the truth about Paul and about God. Selfish ambition is recognized through insincerity and attacks based on false pretenses. They could claim love, but it's insincere. Done with impure motives. And in addition, it says, notice what it says there. It says they are thinking to afflict paul and that word translated as thinking that literally means to 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 make a mental evaluation but without certainty paul seems to be purposely using that word to contrast it with the way the loving brothers know with certainty In essence, what they are doing is they are jumping to conclusions, and then they're using these conclusions that are not based on what is actually true in order to attack Paul. Selfish ambition thinks and acts in such a way that you are always able to keep someone in that preconceived notion that you have about them. Keep them in that box that you've always thought of them in. Love knows the truth about who God is, what God does, and who someone in Christ is. There's a brother or sister in here, in our church, that you have some sort of negative opinion of. That is really dangerous. If there's someone in here that you can think of or you can see, and the first thing that comes to your mind is is not... Joy, that they're my brother or sister in Christ. But you see something negative. Where where does that unfavorable thinking come from? Maybe there's something about your first impression about that person that's stuck with you. Maybe something that they've done has made things harder for you. Or at least you perceive that to be the case. Maybe that person is getting credit for things that you think that you should also be getting credit for. He wouldn't say any of that out loud. But in your heart, that that's where you are. Maybe maybe they have a ministry that you want to have. Maybe maybe they're not in the ministry that you think they should be in. That type of thinking, those type of things demonstrate a lack of real love and a pursuit of selfish ambition. That's the groundwork for selfish ambition. And if you're just acting like none of that is a big deal, then you're also insincere. Love is marked by the knowledge of that which is true. That which is true about God and about others. That God is working in that person's life. If they're a believer, you, you know that. God is working in that person's life that if they're in Christ they are growing because he has promised to grow and sanctify them and they are in a position to minister in the way that God would have them minister in this season of their life you know of course that ministry will grow of course that person will grow of course God will use them if they are a christian if they're really a christian a person who you maybe initially classified as some joyless, impatient, unkind grump when you first met them, if they're really in Christ, they will not stay that way. And, And for you to continue to qualify that person that way every time you see them is to deny the truth about God. That through his power, he will grow his people through his spirit. The fruit of his spirit will manifest themselves in an increasing way in that person's life throughout their life. Selfish ambition thrives on thinking these types of things about others because it's kind of a roundabout way of making sure you can keep feeling high about yourself. You might be able to think of a bunch of people in the church that you love and and truly think and know the the best about them. And for whatever reason, there are a few of these people, these other people, that there's just something about them that just causes you to to focus on the bad stuff in them. To to think of them in a way that you, you would hope no one else thinks of you. Right, don't we trust our brothers and sisters to see us as those whom God is sanctifying? Looking down on our brothers or sisters in the church is a sure sign that you are on the path of living and ministering in a way that is motivated by selfish ambition. That's what looking down on implies. I am above. Subpoint C in verse 18, truth or pretense, um, uh, again, we see a contrast between those two things. Pretense simply means to hide the true state of things before others. And these terms are really a summation of the two categories of brothers who are proclaiming the gospel boldly with the different motivations that we've seen in the previous three verses. So, so we'll just use this as an opportunity to summarize and apply this whole section Those who proclaim the gospel in pretense are those who are motivated by envy, strife, selfish ambition. They're those who jump to conclusions based on speculation or preconceived notions rather than really understanding a matter. And then they try to inflict pain or discouragement at least on those who somehow get in the way of their selfish ambition. Those who proclaim Christ in truth are the ones who are motivated by goodwill and a love that is marked with knowledge about the reality of who God is and who his people are. So we can see from from these verses that it is possible for someone to preach the true gospel with impure, sinful motivations in their heart, at least for a time. And we can see that Paul really believes that this is a danger that Christians need to guard themselves against. When you start to see any of these motivations manifesting themselves in your life in any way and you don't work to kill them right then, then you should not be surprised when your motivation for something even as glorious as the proclamation of the gospel can begin to become tainted by that same sin. And that fact should be abhorrent to us because it is only the one who is motivated by goodwill, truth, and love who can rejoice as Paul rejoices in this passage. Which is the way we must respond when we hear that Christ is accurately proclaimed anywhere. That's the the second point that we're going to conclude with. Response when Christ is preached. What is our response when Christ is preached? While we have seen a wide variety of reasons that someone might proclaim the truth of Christ, some that are selfless, some that are selfish, there is only one right response that a Christian can have to the knowledge that Christ has been proclaimed, and that is joy. And it is a joy that can really only be experienced by those who are driven by a real love because it requires a depth of knowledge and ability to discern reality accurately. This is why we have such a great responsibility in all of these things uh, that we have just looked at to really test our motivations because any ministry that comes out of envy or selfish ambition, even if it's completely true, even if what we're saying is completely true and it's theologically precise, such ministry, though, still fails to really understand the gospel. We need to test ourselves and make sure that the true gospel of Christ is not only the content of our proclamation, but also what drives our proclamation. That is what all of these things demonstrate. The one who is preaching out of goodwill, love, and truth is one who is living in light of the reality of the gospel. Envy, strife, selfish ambition, those can only exist in the life of a true believer to whatever degree that they are failing to really believe the gospel in that moment. Because when you understand the gospel, when you understand the fact that you were created by a holy, good, and perfect God, that He created you in His own image, you're a special creation to be in relationship with Him, and then you understand that, that it is against that God that you have rebelled. You have forsaken and perverted that the privilege of being an image-bearer by rejecting him and his law and living for yourself instead. And you then understand that this God who created you is the just judge of the universe who cannot let sin or let law-breaking go unpunished. And therefore perfect justice demands that you pay for your crimes. And only an infinite payment can satisfy the wrath that justice demands for breaking the law of an infinite God. Our life and eternity should be forfeit. We have no business continuing to live. and We surely have no business experiencing anything but the wrath of a holy God for all of eternity in hell. And that is what our sins deserved, but God who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ. God became man. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, lived the perfect life that we never could, never breaking the law, perfect righteousness. Yet he went to the cross and died in the place of those who would place their faith in him. On the cross, he took upon himself the infinite payment for our sin, as fully God, he was able to take the infinite penalty upon himself. And as fully man, he is able to be our representative. He is able to ransom mankind. And this is proven when God raises him from the dead. And now, when God regenerates you and opens your eyes to this truth and you turn in repentance from your sin and toward your Savior and you place your faith in the life and death of Christ as your substitution, that in his death, he paid the penalty for your sins and in his life, he lived a perfect life that is now credited to you before God. You are not merely returned to the status of mankind before they sinned. You are now an adopted child of the Almighty God, a co-heir with Christ. You've died to the life you are a slave to your own sinful desires and selfish ambitions, and you are now able to live a life of good works and ministry that God has saved and kept for you, and that is all of God. There is no place, no place for even a hint of selfish ambition in this message. Why is it important that I be liked and respected and given prominence, position? Why is it important that I serve in that position that I think I should be in? What was the reason for that again? For you to proclaim this message to someone, to anyone, and then be concerned about your own recognition, your own purposes, that can only be done by someone who has never really believed the message, someone whose heart has never been truly changed by it, and they simply recite it as fact, or by one who is, at least in that moment, failing to believe what they're saying. Really finding your identity in this gospel, just like with Paul, also makes you immune from personal attacks and criticism. It frees you from caring about what others may say about you because you live to please Christ. Paul's purpose in life is to see the gospel advance, to see Christ proclaimed, and if that is your goal, then you will always have something to rejoice in. Paul's identity is in, his, is in the gospel, not in his ministry. If it doesn't relate to presenting the gospel more clearly, Paul has no interest in defending himself. What then? Christ is proclaimed, and this I rejoice. It is the message the gospel message that is important to Paul, not the messenger. He sees that this is the case when it comes to those around him and when it comes to himself. It doesn't matter who likes you and who doesn't. Whatever the circumstances you are in, it doesn't matter. Are you, are you living and breathing within the reality of the transforming power of the gospel? Do you see all of life through that lens? If you do, if that's how you're living, then you will proclaim it out of good will for others, out of love and truth, because you must proclaim it, because how could you fail to? And because you know of its power and you trust that it is the gospel of God, you will rejoice to hear it proclaimed whenever and wherever when it is proclaimed truly and accurately. In fact, the more clear the proclamation of the glorious truth of the gospel is, the harder it should be to focus on the mouthpiece of it. So, in our gospel ministry, there is no room for any type of selfish ambition. To begin to be concerned with how we are thought of by others or how we want to be seen by others or even wanting to prove ourselves, that is to deny the central of the gospel. I am an unworthy sinner. Not even worthy of another breath. I'm saved by Jesus Christ who is, as we read in Revelation 5 earlier, worthy of all glory, all power, all recognition. Selfish ambition, die there. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for what we can see from Paul here. Father, I pray that we would be a A people, a church who lives in the identity they have in Christ, lives out unity in Christ, the identity that has been made theirs in the gospel that has changed us. And and where we have forgotten that, where we have let sinful motives uh, creep in, I pray that now as we enter this time, celebrating the Lord's table, reminding us of the gospel, that that, that we would be able to put that to death. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.